Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So I started to ask myself, like, well, what's wrong with this picture? Like, out there at sea with the fishermen, I had seen, like, the by the bycatch. I had seen uh, ineffective fisheries management. But at the same time, the fishermen themselves weren't making a living either. Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I'm your host, Seb Reed, and in today's podcast, we're diving into the world of restorative aquaculture. You just heard Robert Jones, the global lead for aquaculture at the Nature Conservancy. We'll hear how aquaculture is effectively the regenerative agriculture of our oceans, with the potential to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and help to restore ocean biodiversity. Moreover, it has the potential to be a long-term source of healthy food and can help to create jobs in vulnerable fishing communities around the world. But first, why are we talking about aquaculture at all? Well, the Foundation's latest paper states that 90% of biodiversity loss can be attributed to the way we extract and process our natural resources. And aquaculture is just one of a range of solutions that can be broadly categorised under the circular economy a transformation of our economy that can help us to tackle this huge issue by decoupling economic growth from the harmful effects of our systems of production and consumption. How exactly do circular economy solutions tackle and reverse biodiversity loss? Let's hear quickly from the lead author of the Foundation's paper on the topic, Suki. So the first one is eliminate waste and pollution. And here, take a look at plastic packaging. Today, we dump uh, one garbage truck of plastic into the ocean every minute. And if we don't take action, we'll have more plastic than fish in our oceans by 2050. But what if we could rethink how we design our plastic packaging? So from the start, how can we ensure that plastic plastic packaging never becomes waste um, in the first place? So think about um, edible cutlery, or dissolvable um, sachets made out of seaweed, or um, also products, designing products and solutions that don't need plastic packaging. These types of innovations um, make sure we can eliminate waste and pollution to help reduce threats to biodiversity. I love that example, by the way, because one of the big solutions to that problem has always been how do we clean it up, how do we clean Mm -hmm. the beaches? But of course, we're never going to be able to... I mean, that's, that's that's a kind of a very important thing to do, there's a limit to how much impact that can ever have. Like, are we going to be perpetually forever Mm. cleaning beaches of plastic washing up, or are we going to design our economy differently so they never end up there in the first place? Yes, exactly. And I think what's also important to emphasize is the second principle of the circular economy, which is circulate products and materials, where we have to make sure that whatever we bring into the market in our economy, we have to make sure we keep it circulating and keep it out of our environment. Um, and, and just increase the utilization of our, of our assets. So um, just to give an example, we have fashion. Um, it has been projected that in the future, the fashion industry will require 35% more land for organic cultivation, for growing fibers, uh, but also for livestock. And so here from the, the second principles perspective, how can we rethink how uh, we use our clothes? So how can we, for example, leverage uh, business models to make sure that we can, for example, make sure that the cotton T-shirts that we wear, that we can use them for twice as long through reuse, rental or resale. 
And if we can do that, we would be able to half the amount of land needed to grow that cotton. And in doing that, uh, making uh, more land available for the preservation of wilderness and leaving more room for biodiversity. And then we have the third principle of the circular economy, regenerating natural systems, which is a key one, of course, in this discussion. And I've already illustrated the importance of, of soil and changing how we grow our food. Um, and here, with uh, regenerative production offers a number of benefits. So it's about how can we rethink how we grow our food in such a way that we can stimulate regenerative outcomes. So here, think about uh, making sure we have healthy and stable soils where we make sure that, the, that we bring back nutrients back into the soil. Um, it's about having uh, healthy water tables and, and making sure that the soil that we have is able to soak carbon from the atmosphere. And, and, and in doing that, stimulate both the biodiversity in our soils, but also above the ground. So um, regenerating natural system is an essential one in our fight against uh, biodiversity loss. And so just to close, we, you know, these three key principles play an essential role in in, in our fight. So the circular economy is all about transforming the economy to be regenerative by design. So eliminating, circulating and regenerating ultimately to have, you know, to allow biodiversity to thrive. And in doing that, it has the potential to help address the 90% of biodiversity loss that is currently associated with how we produce goods and grow our food. Eliminate waste and pollution, circulate products and materials, and regenerate natural systems, all by design. These are the principles of the circular economy. But what does this really look like in detail? And can it really work? Restorative aquaculture is one example of the possibilities. I was lucky enough to have the chance to spend some time recently with the Nature Conservancy's Robert Jones. We discussed a number of topics, including what aquaculture actually is, how it delivers the benefits to ocean biodiversity that I previously mentioned, how scalable it is, and whether the economics actually stack up. But first, I started by asking Robert how he went from fisherman and aquaculture cynic to one of the technique's strongest advocates. But, you know, it was like, ironically, uh, the first job I took out of college was as a fisheries observer. And it was during that job I actually started to change my opinion on aquaculture, which kind of led me down this path to where I got today. Um, so as a fisheries observer, basically what I did, I was a, a catch monitor. So I would go to sea, uh, you know, on behalf of NOAA, which is the agency that manages fisheries here in the United States. And I'd be stationed on commercial fishing vessels, um, ones that would be going to the to Georgia's bank in Massachusetts or going out scalloping or, or uh, gill netting for various things. And I would go out with those fishermen and monitor what they caught. Um, ironically, on one of those trips is where I started to just re start to rethink aquaculture. We were, it was actually close to this time of year. It was October uh, and we were on a, I was on, I was placed on a bottom trawl out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. And it was a 10 day fishing trip out to Georgia's bank for cod and other ground fish, uh, mostly flounders and skates and other things like that. Uh, and this was like the worst trip. I like, this was like the nightmare trip for any fisherman. They ripped, I think two nets. Uh, we had a nor'easter hit us. So we had to 
go from George's back back to Nantucket. That was like a hundred nautical mile run. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we really didn't catch very much on that trip uh, in relative terms. Like the fishing wasn't good on top of all this, the lost fishing time and, on, uh, due to the gear and, and the storm. And uh, we were approaching New Bedford Harbor uh, and I see the crew go up to the wheelhouse and talk to the captain, right? And uh, usually at the end of the trip, the captain has a meeting with the crew and they, you know, they talk about the end of the trip and like what the catch is likely to be or, or the, the, the shares of the share of money to the, to the fishermen is likely to be based on what they've caught. So I see everybody go up to the wheelhouse, the crew go up to the wheelhouse and I see them come back down and I see the galley door just slam. <laughs> and I'm like, uh Oh, I don't think that's, that's good. And, uh, I, you know, I, I go up to one of the fishermen. I'm like, well, what's going on? And he's like, well, we just heard from the captain that we're likely to only make a couple hundred dollars on this 10 day fishing trip. And I'm like, wow. And the fisherman's like, I, I actually don't know what I'm going to do now. I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. Um, you know, this is, this is like, a really bad situation for me. Um, so I started to ask myself like, well, what's wrong with this picture? Like out there at sea with far, the fishermen, I'd seen like the by the bycatch, I'd seen uh, ineffective fisheries management, but at the same time, the fishermen themselves weren't making a living either, right? So we were really losing out in the situation in the Northeast. We weren't achieving the biological objectives we wanted to achieve, but we also weren't achieving the social objectives through the fishery that we wanted to achieve. So the way I started rethinking aquaculture was like, well, you know, maybe I've got it wrong with aquaculture. If the wild can't produce uh, enough fish, which is clear, right? Biologically, it's not there and it's not supporting fishing communities in the way it should be. Maybe... (laughs) I should rethink aquaculture. And what I realized was like the experience of these fishermen was the experience of many fishermen, right? There's 50 million fishermen in and around the world. And many of them are struggling day to day. Many of them live on the margins of society. Many of them are having problems paying their rent, right? This is a global problem for these coastal communities. And many of them are marginalized. Is there a way to develop aquaculture um, that can help these communities and solve these problems with seafood supply and take pressure off these wild stocks. So that that kind of became my mission statement coming out of that. Like my personal life ambition was to be focused on this area and try to get aquaculture to be done the right way. And I went to graduate school for that. I went to study at University of Miami and I started looking into offshore fin fish farming, which has much less of an impact than coastal fin fish farming. And then I said, the way to make this happen is, you know, at the national policy level. So I went up to D.C. and I started working on international fisheries policy with the State Department. Uh, and then I started working at the NOAA National Aquaculture Office to help get policy set the right way, to encourage growth in aquaculture, but to make sure it's done in the proper way with the highest environmental safeguards. Uh, and then, you know, TNC came along and said, we need to we need to start a program in this area. We see all these trends. We see aquaculture growing really fast. We see the opportunity to make sure this is done in the right way. Um, 
and, and the the big impact that could could occur if we don't get it right. And I said that, you know, that's something I want to be a part of. So, you know, that's how I got to TNC and that's how I ended up working on what I what I am now. Uh, and, you know, I'm as inspired as a, as uh, on this subject as I was the day I started working on it. There's a ton to do. It's an issue that most people don't know about, but it deserves a lot of our attention. I wondered if you could just tell us briefly, what is aquaculture? Aquaculture is uh, really, it's, it's a simple concept. It's aquatic farming. So agriculture means farming of land. Aquaculture is farming in the water. And that farming can take place in the marine environment, the oceans, or can take place in freshwater environments. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways to do aquaculture, and you can grow many different species through aquaculture. There's actually about 500 species that are currently grown or farmed uh, today. And, um, well, a two-pronged question. I guess one um, is, what's the, you said something about, well, you mentioned 500 species. How much, yeah. approximately how much of our food is from, fish food is from um, aquaculture? And I guess just like agriculture, there are good and bad ways to uh, farm in an aquaculture. Yeah. Um, So for currently, about 50% of the seafood that arrives on your plate is produced through aquaculture. Now, the other 50%, of course, is through wild production, uh, wild fisheries. Uh, So... That's actually very unique as well. Wild fisheries are one of the last wild food sources. And we're just gradually transitioning our seafood over the past 20 or 30 years to, to farm farmed sources. So this, this changeover that now over half of the seafood that we eat is from aquaculture has only happened in the last few years. Uh, and of course, like agriculture, aquaculture uh, can be done in good and less good ways and, and bad ways. And historically, there have been some significant impacts that have been associated with it. Um, habitat degradation, uh, the rise of shrimp farming in the 1980s resulted in a lot of mangrove degra- degradation. Water quality issues uh, is, is one of the main issues that have been historically associated with aquaculture. Uh, undigested feed and, and feces from fish, getting into waterways, uh, causing water water pollution, uh, as well as genetic pollution, uh, interaction of fish that may escape, uh, invasiveness. Uh, these are all issues that have been historically associated with aquaculture uh, gear. Um, but there are right ways to do aquaculture too. And that's, that's what I'm excited about. Actually, I think, um, and we think as a nature conservancy, aquaculture done the right way with the right species can be one of the, the best solutions, uh, along with other interventions, to create a healthier planet, to carry, create a healthier ocean, and create food for a growing population. And I mean, our audience, I think, when they heard you describe what aquaculture was, may have had one or two different reactions. Um, you know, on one hand, some may have felt, well, that's, that's good. We're growing seafood away from wild fisheries, so we're not, um, you yeah. know, well-acknowledged well problem of overfishing. And another part of the audience may have had this vision of very intense 
fish farms um, that obviously then have huge inputs required themselves to um, to actually um, continue to produce seafood. Um, but as you just said, the Nature Conservancy promotes restorative agri- aquaculture quite directly as a solution to things like biodiversity loss. I wonder if you could say a bit about how it how it does that, what, why you think it's an effective solution, solution, and where it fits in the kind of group of solutions we need to some of these macro challenges. Yeah, well, I think I think um, stepping back a second, bigger picture on aqu- aquaculture, uh, we see it as important for two reasons as an environmental solution. One is creating needed alternative supply to wild fisheries, right? And you hit you hit that point. Uh, I think it's important for the viewers to know that 90% of wild fisheries now are either fully or overexploited. And the amount of seafood we're getting from wild sources um, has been flat for the past 20 years. And we need aquaculture to be there uh, when done sustainably to create alternative supply so we're not putting more pressure on these wild resources, on wild, wild animals, essentially. The second reason aquaculture is really important from big picture is the resource efficiency of aquaculture compared to other forms of animal agriculture production. Uh, From a feed usage, fresh water, land use, and carbon emissions perspective, aquaculture does very, very well. Order of magnitude, uh, 10% or less uh, in any of each of those categories, less resource use than uh, beef or uh, pork production. So that's that's very important. But there's certain species of aquaculture uh, that we call restorative aquaculture species that are very unique and have uh, tremendous det- potential, not only to be sustainable, but actually help improve uh, the marine environment. So the species I'm talking about, species groups I'm talking about are oysters, bivalves, and uh, other types of bivalves like clams and mussels and seaweeds. And these organisms, they require no feed to produce, no land to produce, no fresh water, hardly any carbon emissions, but they actually can provide positive benefits to uh, the ocean environment, which is really quite unique. And when you say positive benefits, do you mean creating ecosystems that other life can live in and around? What, what kind of benefits are we talking about? Yeah. There's, there's several different restorative benefits of farming bivalves and seaweeds. Uh, one is water quality benefits. These are bivalves are filter feeders. Uh, a single oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water per day. So they can actually remove nutrients that are in excess in our waterways, like nitrogen. Too much nitrogen in our waterways is a bad thing. It causes something called eutrophication, which disrupts coastal ecosystems. We need less nitrogen in those waters. By farming oysters, we filter that water, and by harvesting them, we can remove that nitrogen from the waterway. Seaweed as well. They're like a sponge. They suck up nitrogen. 60% 60% of our waterways are su- suffering from ni- nitrogen pollution. That's uh, pretty impressive. But beyond the water quality, there's also the potential benefits to habitat and biodiversity, which is really uh, quite interesting. So these farms, when they're designed the right ways uh, and carefully designed, they can actually 
they're actually living systems, right? This is more than just a structure of the farm in the water. These farms provide habitat for wild fish and crustaceans. Um, actually, a single hectare of these farms, a bivalve or seaweed farm, can increase abundance of wild fish of up, up to five tons per year in the surrounding area, which is pretty uh, impressive. So we need more ways to create more habitat and create more fish. And these aquaculture farms, these bivalve and seaweed farms do play a role in that. Uh, but of course, it's not the only tool in the toolbox. And I think that got back to your other question about like where this sits. And uh, restorative aquaculture is an important tool. It meets this intersection of how do we recover oceans and provide food for a growing population. And I think it's quite valuable. But there's other things we need to do as well. Such as um, conserving wild fisheries and, and, and those kinds of actions, of course. Yeah. So like like the way I like to think of it is there's kind of three tool, three legs of the stool <laughs> in terms of what we need to do, three main interventions that what we need to do to create a healthier ocean create jobs in coastal communities and create seafood for sustainable seafood for a growing population. The first is marine protection and restoration. We have to protect what we have left, the most critical areas for biodiversity, these very unique areas around the world that are uh, important to, to preserve for future generations to enjoy. Um, Marine protected area efforts is, a, is something that TNC has, is very supportive of and has been involved with for many years. Uh, we've been doing um, some very unique approaches towards this, uh, such as finding sustainable ways to finance these marine protected areas. Of course, that's one of the main challenges is finding the money to be able to set these up and, with, and manage them into the future. So we have a major effort that we've done in the Seychelles uh, we've been able to help restructure the debt of Seychelles uh, to uh, create a sustainable source of financing into the future to protect a wide expanse of the uh, of the Seychelles' exclusive economic zone, most of its marine area. Uh, the second is rebuilding fisheries. We absolutely have an obligation to do this. As I mentioned earlier, ninety percent of wild fish docks are fully or overexploited. Uh, and we have to get better at managing those fisheries. That's going to take uh, efforts towards uh, knowing, uh, putting more efforts towards stock assessments, uh, particularly doing so in cost-effective ways. So uh, data collection through electronic monitoring means uh, developing processes that enable us to get to good management decisions with limited resources. Uh, Nature Conservancy is very much involved with this. And the last area which we're talking about today is the growth of sustainable and restorative aquaculture. And I think that's absolutely critical. But you have to be doing all of these three things because if we're not doing each of them, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to win, win out here and, and, and uh, create a healthier ocean as, and uh, a greater seafood supply that's sustainable as we're hoping to. So you've painted a, a picture of what aquaculture looks like helpfully for our audience and you've given us a sense of where it kind of fits. I guess the the question that I'd next ask is, you know, we, we've talked about the scale of that it already exists, 50% of, uh, of seafood, um, but obviously that's not the scale that restorative aquaculture, the kind of very beneficial aquaculture that, that we've talked about here right. is operating at. What is the scalability of aquaculture 
And I guess the, the obvious follow-up question to that is, do the economics of it work? Are there economic considerations here? Yeah, absolutely. The potential for aquaculture in general is huge. We're, we're just at the beginning, I think, of growth in the aquaculture space, right? This has been the fastest growing form of food production on the planet over the past several decades, growing at about 6% per year. Uh, it's a pretty straight line upward trajectory. That growth might slow down a little bit as, uh, as you know, the amount we've done today, the growth rate is likely to slow down give, given that uh, a lot of that early growth has already occurred, but it's likely to continue to grow in the future. So there's a lot of room for aquaculture to grow. And if we direct that growth towards the right types of aquaculture, that can be a great thing for, for conservation. But if not, you know, there, the stakes are high there as well. But for bivalves and seaweed, this restorative type of farming, uh, there is a really big opportunity as well. So uh, there's a recent study that our colleagues at University of California, Santa Barbara worked on that showed that there's a, a potential for a 30 times increase of recurrent production levels within, within ecological limits. So there is a great potential to grow shellfish and seaweeds. Um, and we're just at the beginning of that. So 30 times increase for talking about that on, we, we couldn't even really kind of think about that, uh, type, type of growth trajectory for terrestrial agriculture production, right? Uh, that's a sector that's growing like one to 2% per year, right? So, uh, 30 times potential increase there is, uh, very significant. I guess the implication of what you're saying is that aquaculture can create jobs, like reliable jobs to these, these communities. It can, it can, and it can, and it, what our work at TNC, we do a lot of field projects right around the world. A lot of them are in coastal communities, marginalized coastal communities, where there's very few economic opportunities besides uh, traditional fisheries, which we know are getting harder and harder to make a living, uh, and to some extent tourism. So places that we're working, like Tanzania. Uh, places like we're working like parts, remote parts of Indonesia, um, aquaculture is really one of the few viable options for these communities besides those areas I previously mentioned to make a living. And what's great about bivalve and seaweed farming is it's practical for uh, communities that uh, don't have a lot of capital resources, may not have... Um, the educational background in agricultural sciences, right? Don't have a formal education, maybe sometimes not at all uh, to do, right? It's a low capital expenditure. Uh, it, it's a, it's an, some aspects of it, of aquaculture are easy for these coastal communities to learn. So it's a, actually, it's a very basic form of farming, some of the seaweed farming, right? Like some of the ways that this is being approached in Tanzania and Indonesia is basically uh, a rope with uh, two stakes in the water. I mean, it's, it's, a very, it's a very low impact, low resource intensity, low startup cost endeavor. And that's, that's why it has a lot of potential for these coastal communities. It can be done. It's achievable. And there's room for it to grow. Um, one final question from me, Robert, is do you yourself still like to fish? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm out there almost every weekend. Uh, so we enjoy it a lot. Uh, we have a boat here in, in New Jersey and, uh, we take my wife and I go out there. Um, I still fish with my dad when I can. And, uh, we recently got a, a Labrador retriever and we've turned her into a boat dog. So it'd uh, be very impressive. You turned her into a fisherman. Yeah. <laughs> there was something about the story that Robert was telling about his time observing fisheries and seeing the impact on people. In our paper, we talk about the need and importance of conservation, but emphasise the need also for economic transformation alongside that. This is because the root cause is our economic activity, and there's a lot of complexity that comes with that, including at the heart of that, more often than not, people trying to make a living. At the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, we are committed to developing and promoting the bigger idea of the circular economy. So we really appreciate you listening to this podcast, and please do share this with someone who you think might find it useful and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy Podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.